The casting couch has become synonymous in Hollywood with entertainment execs sexually exploiting up-and-coming actors in exchange for career-changing roles in television and film. But this isn't always how things work, as proven by Joel Thurm, one of the most admired, powerful, and accomplished casting directors to have ever worked the job. His credits read like a best-of TV and film list from the 1970s and 80s, including Grease, Airplane, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Taxi, Cheers, Love Boat, Fantasy Island, and The Cosby Show. And he's just written a book on his remarkable career in life. It's called Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director. Joel, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? So far, okay. It's rainy. I've only had one cup of coffee, but I'm doing okay for that. <laughs> I'm on one cup right now, too. Hopefully, cup comes a little bit later on. So this was such an interesting book to get to read from somebody who is uh, one of the all-time great casting directors in Hollywood. And you have plenty of skins on the wall and TV (laughs) as well. So I can't wait to get into some of that. And interestingly, there is a pretty well-known connection to you actually writing this book to begin with. So how did Joaquin Phoenix influence your writing of this book? Well, he suggested after he, well, first of all, I've known Joaquin since he was eight years old or seven. His mother was my secretary at NBC for five years. And uh, and I started, uh, he and his brother, in fact, the whole family, I sent them to an agent because the family had moved to California to get into showbiz. So, and obviously he and his brother, River, had great success. But uh, I was having dinner with Joaquin and his mother at Joaquin's house and this one, when he was, he was already a movie star, but a lesser one. He was doing, starring in a lot of quirky individual movies. And his mother and I, after 14 glasses of wine and maybe a joint that appeared from my pocket that he didn't partake of, um, his mother and I started, you know, just trading war stories from NBC. And he started laughing at all this. He, and of course, he didn't know them because he was eight years old at the time. And afterwards, he said, man, you got to write this shit down. And fortunately, he only lives five minutes away. So I live in Laurel Canyon. So I didn't even have to put the gas on. I just had to roll down the hill <laughs> safely. <laughs> and uh, and I literally started and I wrote two thirds of my first chapter because I when the minute he said that the title popped into my head, which is a really good title. And I wrote the first two chapters of my David Hasselhoff story. Because I just, I just very clearly, I knew that I could do that. I didn't have to look anything up. I could just write. So that's, that's right. you. You bear responsibility for David Hasselhoff. It's a fascinating story, beginning <laughs> his career and going all the way through Baywatch too. It's oh, a yeah. really cool story. But I'm it's. Gonna, I'm not going to ask you about that one though, because there's certain stories okay. here that I need Go to bring people to the book for. What I do want to ask you about though is your your whimsical, crazy life really began. In childhood, you grew up on a farm in Brooklyn, <laughs> just a couple blocks away from a train stop. As odd as that may be for uh, people to consider right now, how uh, just what was that like and how did it shape you as a person? Well, it shaped me as a person. I was a non-athletic kid. I wasn't a sissy, but I was just not athletic. I still have no hand-eye coordination when it comes to handling a ball. I can't drivel. I throw like a girl. If you're catching, I'll go like that, you know, so... But I got street cred because my grandfather had a farm and I could take kids to my grandfather's farm. 
Now, this was a part of Brooklyn that's about as far away from Manhattan as you can get. It was southeast Brooklyn, which means close to a body of water called Jamaica Bay. And it was a, an area that wasn't very built up. I mean, I don't uh, the biggest apartment building might have been three stories. So it was uh, that, And my grandfather's farm at that time wasn't the only farm. There was one other one and much bigger. And my grandfather's brother-in-law had an even bigger farm in Queens. And be among them, between them, they cornered, and don't laugh, the kosher milk business in Brooklyn and Queens. And you're saying to yourself, well, what is kosher milk? What's the difference? It costs two cents more for court. And you hire a rabbi to come in and wave his magic wand and certify the cows didn't eat pork. <laughs> That's kosher milk. Did cows ever eat pork? Well, it, obviously, he didn't think so then, but X number of years ago, remember, there was a mad cow disease uh, scare, mm -hmm. and you found out that there was ground meat products in the feed that cows were eating. So it's totally possible that cows would have eaten pork, you know. I'm not saying they did, but it was possible. It is deplorable what is uh, happening to what's being fed to uh, animals that are a part of this food supply in this country. We won't get into that I, conversation right I also, now. I also thought it was pathetic because my the, the barn that they were in was an absolutely beautiful red brick Victorian building. The cows were like chained like on a slave ship, you know, in stanchions that went from there. They were in shackles and there was a trough in the front, not a trough in the front. There was... You put the bucket of feed and in the back there was a trough for their for their for their manure and the manure would be shoved to the looking at it to the left into an outdoor manure box. And I guess, you know, someone would come every once in a while and collect the manure and pay for it because it was valuable. So, uh, you know, but it came equipped with, a you know, a, a haystack, which I set on fire many times because it was fun, <laughs> but always put it out. <laughs> <laughs> but it gave me unique status in my neighborhood. So I loved it. So did you ever have to actually milk the cows then? I tried once and it, ugh, I didn't want to do it. And I tasted raw milk right out of the udder. No, not I didn't lick the udder, but in a glass and it was disgusting. <laughs> so no, no, never, never a chance of doing it again. But that was my what my grandfather did in Europe. He was a farmer. And in Europe, because where they lived, Jews were not allowed to own property. Mm. So he and his family that emigrated were allowed to buy plots of land because this was here where, you know, Jews and everybody else could buy things. And because they came from either Poland or Russia, whatever, and the border changed constantly. So um, but uh, that's what they did. So I had, I had three relatives who were in the milk business. Yeah, believe it or not, I'm a mutt at this point, but I'm more Armenian than anything else. And my Armenian family had to escape genocide in Turkey in the early 1900s. And they came to America and they did the exact same thing. I think they started on the East Coast, but eventually made their way out to California to the Bakersfield area and bought farms so that yeah. they could be self-sustained and also uh, make a living as well, helping to sell off some of that which they could not use. Yeah, well, that, that's basically what happened. Although this, this was just a dairy farm. There, it was on about this, the size of a New York City block, about a third of a New York City block. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole open space behind the the buildings. I mean, there was the, the, the house where my grandmother and grandfather lived. There was the bunkhouse where the winos slash milkers lived. Now my grandfather would go down to the Bowery, pick up guys, pay them in cash and whiskey to do the actual milking. 
And it's the one place, you know, usually when someone tells me not to do something, of course, I'm going to run and do it. But I was told to stay away from the bunkhouse. And I did, because if you got within six feet of it, the smell was like it would drive you back. So um, I don't know if I answered your question, but that was it. Yeah. No, it's really cool. All right. Moving on now to what really was the start of your uh, career as somebody who uh, did an exquisite job putting people in roles on stage and eventually on television and film as well. Who was David Merrick and why is he such an important figure in your casting career? Well, David Merrick was the most important Broadway producer. And when I say Broadway, that includes national companies of musicals that and musicals and straight plays and comedies that uh, emanated that started in New York. Uh, for a 10-year period, he was it. I mean, that was the ne plus ultra, the Tiffany, the Cartier of producers. And he was an incredibly, I think it is where he was a very colorful character, although he only dressed in black, pinstripe, and gray, and had a jet black toupee and a mustache that was dyed jet black as well. But he was a genius when it came to picking projects. He had great, great taste. And he loved being a character. I mean, he enhanced his own character. I mean, I mean, he said things. It's 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 not only that I should succeed, but others should fail. I worked my way up, uh, you know, and in and, and I started my first job in show business. I was a box office treasurer. And then I helped build an off Broadway theater because I could use power tools. A lot of people can. And uh and you meet people and then you, you meet you meet a guy and who's who you know who who likes you and thinks you have potential and he said oh there's a job open at so and so do you want to interview for it and i say sure so that happened twice and the second one was for the job at david merrick's office and it was a business job it wasn't a creative job but i was smart enough to know hey get yourself in the office just get in there and then let things go and they did to continue the story, I was working for this guy, Merrick's Hatchet Man, his general manager, who was even more notorious than Merrick. He carried out all of Merrick's orders. He was the evil prime minister. And and Jack was, uh, well, I, I, Jack would threaten and then follow through on his threats. And I was his assistant, but I'm not like that. I couldn't do it. But he really wanted a mini me as his secretary slash assistant. So one day I, he, you know, like he, he would buzz, get in here. You know, I went into his office and he says, look, I can't stand working with you anymore. So you got a choice. He said, you can um, go work with Biff. And this was a man named Biff Liff, Samuel quotations, Biff Liff, who later became one of the most important theater agents for William Morris. At that time, he was in charge of production as opposed to business. So Jack said, you can go work with Biff. Um, you can become our casting director, reopen our casting department. You'll get a $50 a week raise or you're fired. Uh, and I said, well, uh, I think I'll work with Biff. That was my choice. But I said to Jack, I don't know anything about casting. And he said, yes, you do. You just don't know you do. I mean, that that's how perceptive this guy was based on conversations that we would have before I got to work. I mean, I got to work at 9.30, work began at 10, and I'd bring it. There was no Mr. Coffee at that time in your office. So I'd bring up coffee and bagels from the corner, and we'd sit there and talk. And he was intuitive enough to know that 
based on our discussions that, you know, his intuition was right. So that's how it happened. So that's why David Merrick is important in so, my life. So you were talking about the plays of the moment and you were hypothesizing individuals, actors that were known in the community who might do a good or better job than the person who was currently in that role. Is that, was that the gist of a lot of those conversations? Well, a lot that was part of it, but the other ones, Oh, I saw this movie last night. It was great. I would talk about whatever I'd seen the night before, but I think what must've stuck in his head, we had a show running called cactus flower. Uh, and the star was Lauren Bacall, but there was also a woman supporting role who became a big star named Brenda Vaccaro. Mm. Out of that, she became a star because of that part. But her contract was up and we knew she was going to be leaving at a certain point. And I remember having a conversation was uh, Brenda's understudy went on last night and I went to see it. And I said she got every laugh. So when Brenda leaves, why don't we just put her in the role and she'll be a lot cheaper. And I think the thing he heard more than everything else was the word cheaper. <laughs> so uh, I think that cemented it. And, uh, you know, that's that, that, that's how it happened. While working this job, you met the legendary actor Pearl Bailey. Uh, how did she really help take your career to that next major step? Paul, Pearl uh, is the whole reason that we're talking. <laughs> My mother was fascinated with show business. And as an early kid, I learned of the only two nationally known Black actresses, Lena Horne and Pearl Bailey. And my mother was in awe of show business, uh, something that she could never do. And, you know, if we were lucky, they went to two plays, two, two Broadway shows a year, and I would pour over the programs. But I knew who Pearl Bailey and Lena Horne were. So uh, my first my job when I got to Merrick, in addition to being Jack's assistant and office slave at night, I became the company manager of Pearl Bailey. Hello, Dolly. And the company manager is the one who makes sure the box offices receipts are all right and handles all the backstage little squabbles. But he took me Jack took me back to meet Pearl that night. And there was something instant that happened and she really took to me. I think part of it was because her family was back in California and she was in New York all alone. And I'm a 19, 20 year old kid. I don't know exactly, I think 20 at that point. And she invited me to dinner that night. And so after the show, I went backstage, <clears throat> waited till she changed. Then we walked down to Sardi's, which was like, you know, six doors down the street. That was the Joe Allens of the time, only a little more expensive. And, you know, we sat in the best location. And that's when I learned how to be celebrity adjacent because I'd sit next to her and people came to the table to tell her they just saw her, how wonderful she was. And she would always say, and this is Joel Thurm from the Merrick office. And of course they couldn't care less, but I didn't mind the fact that they didn't care less because I was sitting with Pearl and having a great time and having experiences that I never would have had, had I, had I, you know, continued my family's plan for me, which is to become either a doctor, lawyer, dentist, teacher, or accountant. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, this was a wonderful world that opened to me and I loved it and I loved her. And what I would do is even though it was made no sense for me to do it because part of her deal was to get a, you know, a limo to and from the theater. And she lived on the Upper East Side. I lived two subway stops down in the village, which is 10 minutes away. But I would sit with her in her car, drive home with her, and then the limo would take me to my house. And we would talk and just, you know, she had no family here in New York. So we, we, we connected. And one day she said, 
you know, like, don't tell anybody, but ABC wants me to do a variety show for them. Do you want to work on it? Do you want to come to California and work on it? And I said, why not? <laughs> so when I say Pearl is the reason I'm here, that's the reason. And by the way, the variety show was was dead on arrival. I, I didn't do my homework because it was a very old fashioned variety show. And, um, you know, Laugh-In had already been on the air and old fashioned variety shows, Perry Como, blah, 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 were, 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 were passe. But that got me to California. It did get you out to California and uh, between gigs, I guess, on the uh, entertainment side of things or the, the movie and, uh, and TV side of things, you did mind the gap by serving as the production manager for the Greek and Hartford theaters. In yes. LA. But eventually you do get that big break as a casting director. What do LSD, the puffy shirt from Seinfeld and a superstar have to do with you catching that first major break? On the way to Merrick, I started working for music fairs, which is a series of the outdoor, mostly outdoor musical tents in the summer. And Westbury Music Fair was had already become a hardtop. So I and my boss there at, at music fairs was a guy who was only a year and a half older than me named Brian Avnet. And Brian Avnet became uh, moved to L.A. and he was a member of the union at PAM, the company managers union. So he moved to California, became a general manager because every all of the, the only ones that were in L.A. then were like 90 years old. Brian was a young and vital guy. And uh, when I got there, he, um, you know, he, he was he was a casting director and he turned to me any project that he was general manager of. He said, you're going to cast it. He never said that, but he always gave me the job. So one of his gigs was the it was going to be a national company of Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, this one was Teddy Neely and Carl Anderson. I did not know that they were going to be doing the movie later on. I just, you know, cast them to do that. But Brian uh, asked me to take his wonderful wife, Maria. Maria was Sophia Vergara, only a little less. <laughs> she was this wonderful va-va-va-boom Cuban woman who, oddly enough, her job was writing the little blurbs and TV guide and lived right down the street from me. And when I got to Maria's house to take her, she said, do you want to do some blotter? And I had no idea what blotter was. And I said, well, yeah, why not? I would do anything once, except inject. I would never do anything under the skin. And so I did that. And I, I after I did it, I said, we said, well, it's acid. It's light acid. Now, the outfit that I choose to wear, wear, remember, it's late 60s, you know, and starting at the bottom, uh, wonderful cowboy boots that you would have appreciated with silver tips, <laughs> uh, brown sort of tan suede bell bottoms, a pirate shirt that, uh, that Errol Flynn had worn in some movie that I bought at the MGM auction when they were getting rid of all their props. And I don't, there wasn't a jacket. That was it, which was, which was enough. <laughs> so those are the three things that you named. And um, I go with Maria and just like uh, all of a sudden the acid hits. And, and the funny part was I was seated between two prospective employers. There's me and then there's Maria. And on one side of Maria is a man named Norman Lloyd, who you may know from being an actor on St. Elsewhere. He was also a producer and was considering me to cast a TV movie. And the other side was this woman, Ethel Winant, who was head of casting for CBS. 
and a very, very important person. I was considering adding me to her staff because of my recent New York experience. So here I am on acid between two prospective employers. And obviously I didn't embarrass myself. I just sat there with a shit eating grin on my face <laughs> you know, all night and then it wore off. <laughs> <laughs> so Christ. that's the story. Jesus Christ Superstars a pretty wild uh production on its own. Did yeah. being on acid make it better or worse? I had nothing to compare it to. <laughs> I don't know, but I think probably made it better cuz it was outdoors. Mm. This was at the Universal Amphitheater and the stage and I forgot who the design well the director was Tom O'Horgan who I'd actually met years before because of my off off Broadway work at the Cafe Chino. So by this time, Tom was a big director star because he directed hair. Mm. And the stage consisted of two arms, like one arm like that and one arm like this that pivoted and turned around that people could walk on and stand. And the other one was JC's head, you know, with, with his face pointing up. Mm -hmm. An incredible stage. And, and it was outdoors and, you know, it was in, the, in San Fernando Valley in the summer and you know, it was it was kind of wonderful. So uh, it was great. Uh, so I think the acid did, did did increase it a little bit, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so you end up at CBS with Ethel as your boss and you write that she was a genius at recognizing talent and manipulating the network's all male execs on both coasts. Now, remember, this is, uh, I want to say the early 1970s at this time. What was yes. the most, most important lesson that you learned from her about casting? you can't learn taste you have to have that but it was how to handle people ethel was a genius at that and this is i think why there were so many originally women casting directors because women knew how to manipulate men they knew how to manipulate the suits and, and invariably they were always men and there was no competition. There was no dick size competition. There was none of that. But, you know, that was it. And I, I'll, I'll go into it, how she single-handedly, without any help, cast the Mary Tyler Moore show. The first one, the executives at CBS did not like the Mary Moore, uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show. They did not want to do it. But uh, Ethel became friends with one of the writers, Alan Burns. And she said, I read this. It's brilliant. Everybody here hates this, but I will work on this with you quietly. And one by one, she cast every single role on that. The last role to be cast was Rhoda. And Rhoda got, uh, uh, Valerie got the job because she happened to be in LA as part of a, a group that was performing downtown at the music center called Story Theater an improv group that started in Chicago. And that's when Valerie came from. But otherwise, Ethel knew Ed Asner, but she knew him as a dramatic actor when she was casting live drama in New York. Mm -hmm. But she also knew Ed personally and knew that Ed could be funny. You know, so one by one, that's how she did that. And I, I learned tremendous things from her. I also learned from Ethel on a quiet afternoon, nothing was going on. And we were all sitting around and Ethel looked at her, the group. There were four of us, maybe five. And she said, you guys don't realize how lucky you are. You enjoy coming to work every day. Do you know how many people in America hate going to work every day? And you get to meet and interact with celebrities that you've only dreamed of meeting. 
And she went on like that. And I never, ever forgot how lucky I was. And she was right. Your TV projects uh, during your time at CBS included the Bob Newhart show. And then something that I'd never heard of before, but it sounds like a really good show called The Minutes. What was oh. The Minutes and why were you so proud of this show? Well, first of all, yeah, the Bob Newhart show was the first thing that I cast at CBS. I didn't do the pilot, but I did everything else after that. The group therapy group, all of that. And the Bob Newhart show was always Mary Tyler Moore's, you know, stepbrother. <laughs> you know, they were always listed together, but Mary was over here. Newhart was over here. But I didn't mind that. Then there was something called the Bicentennial Minutes, which was on the air for two years at CBS. I think it was on at eight o'clock every night in prime time. There was one minute that was devoted to the upcoming bicentennial, which means it started in 74. A lot of people made fun of this later on, but it was someone would come on and they said uh, on January 1st in 1974, Peter blah, 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 went out in the woods, chopped down a cherry tree and blah, 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 blah. And that's the way it was using Walter Cronkite's sign off. And that's the way it was. So Ethel knew, and I knew at that time, that while I liked casting, my ambitions was to go beyond casting and do other things. So what this allowed me to do was, first I would, I would find the appropriate person for the minute. And then once we were in the studio, I worked with a director, but he was a technical director. So he was only concerned with, you know, the moving in and out and the framing and all of that. But it was up to me if the person, if the star or whoever it was, was reading the material saying, I don't feel comfortable saying that. How could we rephrase this? And then I would rewrite it with them on the spot. Um, or that uh, the director would say, well, we're too long. We have to cut. I would do that. And this gave me the opportunity to expand and, you know, do things like with no supervision and no training. You know, and I shouldn't say no training because I watched what Ethel did for the pilots, if you will, for the minutes. Ethel dragged in a couple of her well-known friends like Paul Newman and Asner and, uh, and Cloris Leachman to do some of the minutes. And I watched the process and she trusted me with doing it. And I loved the freedom of doing it. You know, it was just great. Charlton Heston was one of my favorites, by the way. Why is that? Uh, well, first of all, uh, I would meet people at the artist entrance. He goes in, and this is during the, uh, there, was a, maybe there was a gas shortage when OPEC did this. And uh, he sees me and uh, he throws me the keys to his car and he said, could you fill her up, please? <laughs> He did. Uh, and he just thought I was like a page or something, and I did. I feel. I first. I ruined his gear shift because it was a stick shift, a black Corvette, very dirty inside, by the way. And uh, but filled it up, came back, and I go into the studio, and he had no idea that I was going to be the one directing and supervising this minute, and he kind of laughed and apologized, you know, about it for it. And I said, "Hey, no problem. You got your gas, and you're here." So it was just and. You know, at that time, a little bit of his conservative background was beginning to bubble bubble up, but he was nothing but wonderful. So in my little experience with him. So you didn't find any guns in the glove box then? <laughs> I didn't look. <laughs> they, maybe they were there, but I didn't look. I'm glad that he showed a little bit of modesty to, uh, to to not only be able to laugh about the situation, but also to apologize to you. Because I'm sure there's people in that business who uh, wouldn't even think to begin to apologize. They would just uh, move on to the next thing. 
exactly exactly no it's it's a, yeah and and it's interesting it's uh you, you judge people very often by how they treat the little people mm-hmm. it's okay to argue and bitch and complain to the people on your level but when you start doing that to the little people you've stepped over a line you know so and i've always observed that and when i was in the position of getting back at those people i did <laughs> I love to hear that. That's a great piece of advice, too, by the way. Now, Ethel eventually allows you to take part in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, first in theater, and then eventually what became the cult classic movie. While the film included Tim Curry and most of the original London theatrical cast, plus uh, Meatloaf, uh, you got to cast two parts, the American characters Brad and his fiancée Janet. Why was Susan Sarandon the only actor you really had in mind to play Janet? Because, boy, you nailed that one. Well, <laughs> I had used Susan before in a few other things. Uh, at, at, again, at CBS, we did a miniseries about Benjamin Franklin, and she played uh, the Bo Bridges and Lloyd Bridges with the younger Ben and the older Ben in the first episode. And the older woman was going to be, was a woman named Sherry North, which sounds like a big, you know, glabberpuss name. Uh, and she was of that era, but she was a sensational actress and she had these eyes that were this size. So when it came to casting her younger part, Susan Sarandon with those eyes. But I also knew Susan, I forgot how how I met both Susan and her husband, Chris Sarandon, just through stuff in New York. But I knew that Susan could go from virgin to slut in less than 30 seconds. That was in her wheelhouse. It still is, by the way. But um, so that's how, um, you know, I just that, that's how I zoned in on her. And I guess when I first moved to, to Cal in the early years, I would I would have a lot of dinner parties and invite people over. I was a fairly decent cook. And um, at one of these, I invited Susan and Chris, her then husband and Barry Bostwick. Uh, of course, Barry's manager, Bob Lamont, was my best friend at the time. And at this dinner, I didn't know it while it was happening, but Susan and Barry locked the eyes. And Susan's marriage was already on the rocks. And a couple of days later, she and Barry were a couple. Your question was, how did I zero in on her for that? I just knew. I just, uh, I knew that she was right for it. I um, And I knew that I knew that she could sing a little bit. So um and we did have audition. We uh, there was uh, Lou Adler who produced it, who was did the, all of this, who gobbled up the rights to to Rocky Horror. Um, was a music producer, and he had a woman that he had in mind. Her name was Abigail Hannes, who was an incredible singer, but she wasn't an actress. So Susan wasn't the only one who auditioned, but um, it was obvious when 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 Susan and Barry were on stage together that that was it. But, you know, this is what I got paid for is knowing these things and having an instinct. Right. Yeah. It sounds like uh, you you operate not just on your intuition, because obviously there's the experience there, too. But uh, you are very savvy in understanding when your intuition is going off as to uh a person that belongs in a particular role. And there are plenty of other examples that we're going to continue to talk about here, but you move on from CBS to spelling Goldberg, <laughs> Goldberg productions. Yeah. 
and on the 20th Century Fox movie studio lot. The projects that you worked on during this time, Joel, it's incredible. If one person had this uh, on their resume, it would be a career's worth of shows. But this was one stretch of your life and, and your career. Starsky and Hutch, Charlie's Angels, The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, and The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, to name more than a few. But before we get into some of these shows, why were Aaron Spelling and uh, Leonard Goldberg such a good team with this production company when it was at its peak? They were geniuses because they were yin and yang. I don't know which was which, but they totally complemented each other. I was in awe of this. It was the first time that I w- that I went to see Rough Cuts when I went to see film dailies. I didn't do any of that at CBS, really. So uh, let's say, let's take a, a rough cut of an episode of Starsky and Hutch. I would go to it and Aaron and Lynn would be there. First, one of them would get up after the after the piece and talk to the people in the room who is the editor of me you know all the people necessary to finish it and he would they would critique it beautifully succinct comments and then let's say len got aaron got up first len would then get up and finish all the other things that needed to be fixed or done to it they perfectly complemented each other perfectly len was the more serious one Len always had an, uh, and he did eventually want to go into feature films. Aaron loved television and he loved what I call bread and butter television. He wasn't interested in winning Emmys. He was interested in winning eyeballs and giving the people what they want. Len aspired to a little higher. So I had both of them to learn from, Mm. you know, that's why it was so great. And then along comes, we'll talk about, we'll talk about Boy in the Plastic Bubble when you want me to, but that's, that's how I got to do that. Well, yeah, let, let's go ahead and talk about that because you say that this is the TV movie that really changed your life. Why? Well, it changed my life because I produced a movie and I didn't know how to produce a movie, but I produced a movie. Not only did I produce a movie, but I put the whole package together without knowing I was putting a package together. There was a woman uh, who developed scripts for Spelling Goldberg. Her name was Cindy Dunn. By the way, her father was the president of ABC, so she got the job through nepotism, but she delivered in her job. She was great. One Friday afternoon, she comes into my office looking very sad, holding a script, and she said, ABC just turned down my favorite script that I've been developing for two years. She said, the only way they'll do it is if we can get a big star in it. Otherwise, they're passing. And she said, can you do me a favor and please read this script? I said, Cindy, it's not a favor. That's my job. <laughs> so, I, I, which she laughed. And I took the script home. It was a Friday. Saturday, I'll I'll try to make it fast. I had a reading ritual with another friend named Bob Lamont, who I mentioned earlier, who was a top talent manager. And I say, we would lie on my deck, getting melanoma, reading scripts. And Bob had a client who suddenly hit that year named John Travolta. And even though John's name ends in a vowel and he's from New Jersey, he is not his name. But he was playing that character on Welcome Back, Cotter, Vinnie Barbarino. And John wanted desperately to let the world know that he wasn't Vinny Barbarino, but he had only a month to do something before he had to go back to Cotter. So I read the Boy in the Plastic Bubble script. And when I finished it, I throw it over to Bob. I said, John could do this in less than a month. I mean, I said other things, but essentially that's what I said. He goes home and he reads it. 
He said, I love this. I'm giving it to John. That's a Saturday night. Sunday night, by Sunday night, John had read the script and said, I want to do it. <laughs> so Monday morning, I go in and I announced, Cindy, I said, you think John Travolta is a big enough name? And she said, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm not kidding. And then we call Aaron and Len, who don't believe me. He wants to do this. Why does he want, you know, it's like, why, if someone wants to do it, why am I asking why, you know? And then when they called ABC and the head of it then was a guy named Mike Eisner, Mike Eisner said, well, why does he want to do this? We've shown everything else at him. Why does he want to do this? That the same question. And it only became real when ABC made John an offer. They made a cash offer of $25,000 and John countered and got $75,000. But you only know something is real when cash is on the line. And then I had suggested because I had cast, I had a, a friend, a guy named Randall Kleiser, who I'd met at a party. He was in his last year at USC uh, and his master's thesis, and he asked me for help casting his master's thesis at USC, which I did. And because I read the piece and I thought it was wonderful. That master's piece, piece, that master's thesis went on to be aired at, on NBC for the next 10 years after he did it. It was a brilliant story about a boy, a college-age guy, i.e. Randall, visiting his grandmother in a nursing home and revisiting pleasant times in their life because now she had alzheimer's the word didn't exist at that time and i said my god this is incredible and i cast it and randall had gotten a couple, a couple of other tv gigs at that point and i said and i had previously suggested randall to cast some episodes of spelling goldberg shows and he did the cast loved him and he was on time and budget and so I said to, I said, and I, I'd like to do this. And I'd like Randall Kleiser to cast the, to produce, to, to direct this. And they said, great. So between Wednesday and Friday, I had a movie to produce, but, and I said, and Cindy and I want to produce the movie. And they said, fine. And we started doing again. I didn't know what I was doing, but I just did things that you do. You know, I, I can't explain it. And Cindy and I, we weren't expecting any extra money because we were year round. We were being paid year round by Spelling Goldberg. But I said we definitely want credit as producers, and we got a definite maybe. <laughs> so we did it. And I think you probably know this for the book, but afterwards when they saw the rough cut and it was, and I was home working on my house, lying in the bathtub with a joint and a glass of wine and a very long cord on the phone. And I think I forget who calls first. It probably was Aaron and said, we love the project. You did a great job and you're going to get producer credit, but I had to fight Len. He was against it. Monday morning, I go into the office and I get a call from Len you did a great job. We love the movie and you're going to get producer credit, but I had to fight Aaron for that. <laughs> Hilarious. So, anyway, so that's the boy in the plant. But again, all of the previous knowledge that I had built up, watching Ethel, doing Bicentennial Minutes, doing this, doing that, that's how you learn. It just, you, you, you learn how to do it. Yeah, I enjoyed this book for so many different reasons. A ton of great stories, some of which you've already uh, been nice enough to tell in this podcast, but you're also dropping little philosophical nuggets throughout the book as well. For instance, uh, one of my favorite lines is, quote, to this day, I believe the less money you have on a project or the less <laughs> money you have for a project, the more it forces the creative folk to be inventive and clever. 
Why is the original film production of Greece, which you were an instrumental part of, such a good example of this? Well, I'll give you one very good example. But I, I wrote that because of my experience when I produced the movie Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And I wish we had had less money. We had a $10 million budget. I wish we had a five. But going back to Greece, fortunately, the best thing that happened to Greece was the guy, the genius promoter guy who put it all together, Alan Carr, uh, was sick through most of the production. <laughs> and with a, with a, a, a tummy tuck where they you know staple your stomach so you lose weight. And he wasn't around. And I filled in for all the producer things he should have done. But the best example is I Randall Kleiser comes over, the director, one day, and he says, Oh God, I just we found out we can't go to Magic Mountain for the finale. And I said, Why are you looking so sad? That's great. We shouldn't be at Magic Mountain in the first place. We should have a little dinky carnival that winds up in schools and churches. And I was right. You know, I don't know how much money that saved. It saved a lot of money, but it was the right thing for the movie to do. You know, another example was he didn't have time to actually cover with with, with photographically cover Olivia Newton-John singing the Sandra D. reprise where she decides she's going to become slutty Sandy. And I said, you don't need it. You don't have to cover her. We're in the river. You're shooting up. You see her zoom in on her and she'll do the song as a voiceover. Why does she have to record? Why do you have to record her seeing her singing it? You know, so it's things like that where you don't have enough money, you get creative. Okay, so I'm glad you mentioned that uh, final scene in Greece with Slutty Sandy because <laughs> Olivia Newton-John coming out in that skin-tight, all-black outfit at the end of the film is one of those scenes that's going to live on to the end of time. So Absolutely. What, what was it like to watch that play out in person? I was literally there. I, for whatever reason, I was that day, I was there in front of her dressing room when she came out. No one had seen the hair. No one had seen anything. None of us had seen anything. The costume, what I found out only after the fact was Albert Wolski, great costume designer who doesn't get mentioned nearly enough for the costumes he did on Greece. Uh, Olivia walks out with the hair on the side and she sees me and she's kind of laughing and winking and preening and kind of showing off. And Albert is following her because he's right behind her because she's attached by a th needle and thread. He's sewing her into the back. He had to sew her, I found out later, because there was no zipper. He bought this at a used clothing store. So I was there when she came out and it was like, I was just laughing and, you know, Olivia. Not, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss, Joel. <sighs> Not only was she an absolutely beautiful woman, she was also an incredibly smart woman. And she had a great sense of humor and self-deprecation. So she had fun dressing up and doing that. And you could see the joy that she had stepping out in that outfit. And, you know, the cigarette, tell me about it, stud. I mean, excuse me. <laughs> ah. Now, I'll get over it. But, you know, it comes over me in waves when it comes to talking about her. Because I went on to produce a movie with her called It's My Party, 
and she was she's also is I, I, I we had to cut some incredible dramatic work that she did in that movie and we just had to cut it for time but she was brilliant i mean she could do anything she wanted to i mean and and and, and on top of that she was just a wonderful person so you, i just teary-eyed you and uh many of the grease team including john and olivia end up getting back together several years ago uh, to do some uh, s- some live performances, I think this was pre-COVID back in 2019, maybe December of nine, December of 19, right pre-COVID. It was an absolutely wonderful, wonderful time of my life. The sensation. I'm guessing you're especially glad about that now because it gave you one more chance to be around your close friends. Well, it did that, but it also uh, one of my problems with Greece was I had no portfolio beyond casting it. Yeah. Randall Kleiser, you know, I promised him I would be on the set every day because he knew not. I had seen Greece six times off Broadway. Bob Lamond, again, this I mentioned him a few times. All of his clients were in it. Barry Bostwick, Carol Demas, Jeff Conaway. So I knew Greece in and out. He didn't. And he wasn't. I, I My joke is he, he not only wasn't he a musical comedy queen, he wasn't even a lady in waiting. You know, he didn't he just didn't know. And I did. And he didn't want to take the job. Uh, or he, I mean, he would have taken it. But he said, if I take it, will you promise to be on the set every day? And I was. But I had no authority. And that's a very odd position to be in. However, when it came to Greece, Florida, things had changed completely. Hmm. By that time, word had gotten out on exactly what I did, you know, beyond the fact of casting. But um, my job was to write um, the phony audience questions during the Q&As after the, there was a screening of the, first of all, there were the, I don't know why the girls weren't there, the, the pink ladies, but the T-Birds were now 40 years later. But they came out, did their shtick. And uh, then Randall Kleiser would come out, introduce the movie. The The screen would come down. You'd watch the movie. And uh, then we'd have our lunch, dinner. And then as the screen was rising, John and Olivia would walk out in their costumes, looking fantastic, even though it was a wig on John. It was fantastic. And the audience would go crazy. It like was the Beatles reunion. Um and uh, and I got to and I really had a job. My job was to make sure that the if there weren't good enough questions from the audience, I had the I had the phony. Like I always had a question about Olivia's health, which I knew she wanted to talk about her cancer. But there was always a woman in the audience who asked that question. But I was prepared in case not. But I threw in funny questions to get reactions like, are you guys interested in a threesome? You know, uh, and when you and John and Olivia liked throwing things at that John more than Olivia, Olivia was good at if you gave her a little idea of what was coming. And very quickly, they took a moment to laugh. And then Olivia said, we're already in one. And they pointed to the three T-birds on stage, (laughs) you know, so I had I had I had I had so much fun then. And, you know, just got to spend more time with John and Olivia as as people, as as friends. And we were going to do that cross country if it wasn't for these were tests to do it. John always wants to make as much money as he can. So and the tickets went from, I think, fifty dollars to a thousand or fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred got you a, a minute of a photograph of John and Olivia and a cheesy little gym bag. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, that was it. That was it. You know, life interferes. What did you love about working on Taxi? Well, I loved working on Taxi because of the script. Yeah. You know, you get a script and you look at that and it's like, oh, my God, I, I'm going to cast these great words. You know, I must say, backing it up, the hardest thing to do, and believe me, I had to do it, would be to cast an unfunny TV pilot mm -hmm. <laughs> for very little money. Because that, for some reason, that's one of the lowest paying jobs. But I get this. And not only do I get it, I also have like months to cast it, which I'll get to that in a minute, which I some which I re I thought was great then, but now I realize I'd much better have a limited amount of time to cast because people don't second guess themselves. So I read this and it's like, wow, you know, I'm so lucky. And I got the job because they knew my the people who wrote it knew my work from Bob Newhart. Um, so that that that's how that happened. Um but I read it and like, okay, you know, I, I know uh, and Andy Kaufman was, um, he was sort of a very easy one because of his character of foreign man. So that was, we, we, I mean, my first meeting with them, I said, what about Andy Kaufman? And they said, oh, that's who we wrote it for. <laughs> I didn't know that. Okay, fine. One down. And then uh, the next easiest part for me to cast was Louis. But I was told about Louis don't spend too much time worrying about Louie. All we need is a funny looking guy. He's never going to have more than one or two lines an episode. <laughs> they were wrong but about I, that one. But I know from my television experience that you never know who's going to have one or two lines and who's going to have, who's going to dominate. I knew that they didn't or didn't realize it. So I literally brought in two people. And, you know, this this story has been told before where you never bring in one person, by the way, you always bring in two. Mm. So I brought in the first guy read and he read very well. And he was the opposite of Danny. He was very skinny and nerdy. Um, but I bring in Danny and, you know, he gets the part by, you know, doing this, taking the script and who wrote this shit? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what Louis would did. And he and of course, the guys are all the guys because there were no women making decisions and they're laughing. And he continues the discussions as Louis. All right. Two down. One by one. All the characters were were knocked off. Um, we offered Judd Hirsch the part. He turned it down. Leave him on the side for a while. Tony Danza comes in it because he had done a pilot for ABC years ago. The original part was, by the way, that he, he had an Irish last name and he was supposed to be a 40-ish washed up boxer. Hmm. And they thought, well, so this guy, a former ABC executive said, you know, we did a pilot with this guy. His name was Tony Danza, who actually is a boxer. You ought to see him bring in Tony for the part, they completely rewrite it. And they're right, because not only is he cute and funny, but he's no longer a tragic figure. He's a he's a guy with aspirations. He's not washed up. He wants to do things. So I don't know how many we've gone down so far. Um, Mary, Mary Lou. Yeah, Mary Lou, I think you said you knew she was the right person for the job. Gosh, she was such a babe on that show, too. Well, but my first of all, her character had so many different iterations. Mm. At one point, she was supposed to be black. It was written that character was written for Nell Carter, but Nell Carter got taken away because she was doing eight misbehaving. And then, uh, give me a break, 
So she was no longer available, but they had written, but the character was so amorphous. It could be that they, it had to be a woman. But the reason I wanted Mary Lou was I had met her and knew her. I knew in addition to being gorgeous and sexy and a good actress, Mary Lou could take shit from the guys and give it right back. You know, forget me too stuff and forget you're not supposed to do that. First of all, this was before that time. But even today, I would cast Mary Lou in that part because you could use exactly the same dialogue because if the guys are giving her shit, she gives it right back. Plus, she was gorgeous and could act. So to me, that again, that was a no brainer. But I, I did something that um, I will do on upon occasion when necessary because the guys had too much time. They didn't. She wasn't exactly what they had first thought of for the part. And she was this and she wasn't that and she wasn't that. So I just lied. And I said, look, I don't want to lose her. And if we don't make her an offer today, she's going to disappear and we won't have her. And I don't have a backup. So I lied and she got the part. They said, OK, pull the pull it, pull it, set her, go, go do that. As it turned out, which I didn't know, Mary Lou actually had she was going to get another offer from another show. So while I was lying, I was actually telling the truth, but I didn't know I was telling the truth. So let's go back to, to Judd for a minute. Yeah. Judd didn't want to do it because, uh, not didn't want to do it, but yeah, he didn't want to do it because he was newly married, had a new family in New York, and he thought, well, taxi, and it'll, it'll go for six months. I don't want to uproot my family and go to California for a job that's not going to last. <laughs> So we kept going back and back and finally made him an offer that he couldn't refuse, meaning his salary, Mary and uh, Mary Lou and 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 what's his name? Uh, Danny were getting in the range of thirty five hundred an episode to four thousand. Mm -hmm. Judd started at thirty five thousand an episode. Oh, man. Nowadays, that's what you'd pay. But though that was an extraordinary figure. But, you know, he held out and got his money. By the way, in the next, in the first, after the first year, when everybody renegotiates, Danny and Mary Lou and everybody else went up to their, you know, to what they should have been paid. Um, but the role of Bobby, the actor, was, uh, here's a, a case where I was wrong. I wanted Jeff Conaway. I thought he'd be great in the part. Perry, I knew, I, Grease hadn't been released yet, but I, I thought Jeff was going to become a movie star grab him while you get him he certainly is everything right for the part at the day of his reading jim brooks who was really the elder statesman of the five writers um unbeknownst to me brings in oh forgot it cleavon little cleavon little wonderful black actor tony award-winning actor for broadway blazing and, star blazing Sa saddles for those who are on yeah and, and for movies blazing saddles yes and and I realized, you know, Jim is right. Jim is right. I'm glad he did this. I didn't know. Um, but what happens is Jeff reads brilliantly and Cleavon reads terribly. And I became Norma Ray uh, in favor of, of Jeff. So but, and, and with a little reinforcement of a little bump of coke in the bathroom, because that's what you did at that time. Just a little bit. And I became very eloquent. And uh, Jeff got the part. But I realized, as I said earlier, years later, I was wrong. How can, because I, I, I even said to the guys, how can you have an all white taxi group in New York? And they always promised to add a black or a diverse, the, the word diverse didn't exist. They were going to add a black character later on, which they never did. 
you know, so that's my, that was my taxi story. But, and then of course, taxi gets done and I become this hero at Paramount. <laughs> Paramount has made probably over a billion dollars on my casting work. If you include airplane, cheers, taxi, airplane sequels, uh, Greece <laughs> sequels. And um, then, you know, Paramount offered me a job and I became head of talent for Paramount. You know, it uh, didn't last very long, but that's how that's how that happens. So I don't know. I went off topic. It, it feels a little bit like a Sophie's Choice decision trying to pick my favorite thing that you've done over the years, Joel. But if I'm being honest, it's probably Airplane. Airplane is uh, it, it's one of those movies that since it came out, it has continued to amuse audiences and, and younger and younger generations are, are now exposed to this movie. I'm probably going to show my my kids airplane at some point in the next few years, and I'm sure they'll laugh as hard as I did the very first time. When you first read the airplane script, were you laughing as loud as so many audiences over time have done since? Not only was I laughing, I was embarrassed to go in because I was reading it over breakfast and <laughs> you know, laughing with spit takes all over the cover. The cover was no longer white. It, it didn't have a thick cover. It was actually just the that started with like the second page, and it was it was like disgusting. But I laughed so hard in reading it. It's my sense of humor. But the uh, the reason why you're going to show it to your kids is that the three guys were geniuses. There's stuff in there that you don't even notice. But if you look carefully, there is nothing in there that indicates a 1970s time period. Hmm. The clothing could be any period. They wanted it to be specifically not set in the 70s or any other era. Hmm. And that's one of the reasons why it's going to go on forever and ever and ever. In addition to being, of course, extraordinarily funny. But they were very, very smart in everything they did. And for some reason, I knew when I read it, that in order for the other, you know, the male, the 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 air control, you know, all those other characters had to be straight. They had to be played straightly, straight by straight actors who were not known for comedy. Whereas Paramount, the studio, the studio's lists for those roles are hysterical, you know, with with even some ridiculous suggestion of uh, what's his name. Barry Manilow, oh, Barry Manilow for for the lead, you know, and, and Don DeLuise is this one, and you know all the old character actors. What what did they want Letterman to play? The lead. Okay. The lead. He was that for, it. and he auditioned actually because that could have gone either way. Yeah. But he's not an actor. No. You know, he's just not a good actor. I by that time I had cast, I for well I cast and produced a TV series that lasted for two years called Angie. So I knew Robert Hayes. And I knew that he had that kind of vacant thing about him. That's just him naturally. And um, I didn't bring him in right away because uh, Paramount wanted stars. And every single star in the universe, you know, turned it down. You know, very few people actually got got meaning understood the comedy in airplane but i did and uh i had i had fun they indulged me by i said you you I, you you must put peter graves as the pilot because that's my childhood story where i wanted peter graves from my father i wanted to be that kid in the cockpit <laughs> 
No, again, I've always been very open about my life. So, you know, who who cares, you know, but they got my, and they did, they cast me to graves. Oh, such a great character. He's like this borderline pedo and Kareem is his, is his uh, co-pilot. I mean, you talk, you write about this in the book. Peter Graves had his reservations at first, but thankfully his family talked him into the role. This kid, but that was not unique. Other people did too. Um, I forget who, but some of the other, um, you know, guys, um, um, Robert Stack, or those kind of people. Also, they didn't get it. But it was interesting. One of their agents, who was one of the oldest agents in the world, Gabby Gresler. In fact, he was so old that you called him the gray ghost. When he would come to your office, he literally had his skin was had a gray pallor. What was left of his hair was white. But Abby Gleshner knew that that script was funny. So a couple of, I forget which of the clients were his, but he said, no, you're doing this. You may not get it, but you're doing it. <laughs> so it, he was a big help. Well, it's crazy that Kareem was third in line to play Captain Roger Murdoch too. You had two other sports stars in mind first. Well, it was, what's his name? Uh, well, my first one was, uh, uh, what do you call it? Well, they wanted Pete Rose, who wasn't available because of baseball. And I wanted, uh, what's his name? Uh, what's her name? <laughs> Jenner, yeah. Yeah, Bruce Jenner. Um, and because he was on the Wheaties boxes and he was the most important athlete at that point. And he, he turned it down. And I, I joke about it, but not so jokingly, because he took a part. He turned it down so he could do Alan Carr's movie, uh, Can't Stop the Music. And I, and I, my, my, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but his costume and can't stop the music were a pair of Daisy Dukes for the whole movie. <laughs> so, so maybe that's why he did it. I don't know. Perhaps a precursor. Now, I, I'm a child of the 1980s, Joel. So I only really know Leslie Nielsen as this slapstick actor. But even Leslie Nielsen in that movie, this is a guy who had essentially played rich white collar villains up to this point in his career, but you casting him in airplane uh, essentially gives him a, a second life as an actor in Hollywood. Well, what, what happened was we went through every single famous person who played the doctor on movies and television, and they all turned it down mm -hmm. from Jack Klugman to Richard Chamberlain, everyone to Ben Casey, everyone who had been that, and they all said no. <laughs> and the boys, the, the airplane boys always wanted Leslie Nielsen. So he became our plan B when all those other people turned it down because they had seen him on a late night talk show being very funny. I hadn't seen that, but they had. But, but when, when I got the clip, I knew exactly what they were talking about. So when everybody else turned it down, that's how Leslie Nielsen got that part. And in, in later subsequent interviews, he always said that he never understood why he was cast as all those white collar villains. His natural mean and being is to be very funny. Not, I guess it was because of the way he looked, you know, and there weren't many comedy roles for people who looked like him. So maybe that, that was it. And, you know, he and Peter Graves died within two weeks of each other a couple of years ago. You yeah, know, boy, it is interesting to think about that. Maybe it's the fact that he has a, a fairly stoic look on his face at all times, even when he's saying and doing pretty outrageous stuff. Yeah. Well, when you think of comedians, how many comedians are actually incredibly handsome? Mm -hmm. Seinfeld is Jewish cute. 
<laughs> you know, uh, Chris Rock doesn't fit into any of them. You know, Eddie Mur Eddie Murphy was cute. Eddie Murphy was handsome, but was but very few of them are because I guess comedy comes out of not being great looking. <laughs> you know, self-deprecate Joan Rivers, although I think she was pretty, but you know, she didn't think she was pretty. So anyway, wherever it came from, it came from. So uh, you uh, did briefly mention a few answers ago, uh, getting to work on Cheers, which maybe that is my number two. And th this is a 1982 on NBC, which uh, you're at NBC at this point, Green Lights, Cheers. And you were uh, in charge of casting for this, uh, what turns out to be one of the all-time great TV shows. Why were Ted Danson and Shelley Long literally the first two names that you brought up when talking about casting the various characters? Because I'm not stupid. Because I, first of all, Shelley Long, I mean, Helen Keller would have figured out Shelley Long if you looked at her, if you looked at Shelley's work. Her big thing was funny neuroses in movies she had played that in person she used to have a little bit of that. So Shelley was someone we agreed on from day one, everybody concerned. Um, when it came to Ted, uh, to, to the other, to Sam, it was a whole different story. Um, while I was at Paramount, he he played a fireman on an episode of Laverne and Shirley. I also had met him while I was the head of talent at Paramount. He did a pilot for us called Alice and Sidney Harrison. It was a dramatic pilot. Well, dramatic if you roll your eyes about a father and daughter detective show, no less. And I got to know Ted at that point you know there was so many auditions and stuff you get to know the guy and you see he has a sense of humor he's affable he's handsome he's likable so uh to me it was that it was you know that's why i thought of him you know and again his comedy chops i'd, I'd seen you know in addition to laverne and shirley there was something else he did that was funny so that's how i you know came up with it in the middle i mean in, at our first meeting but I did tell them, but you're going to see everybody. But my intuition is this is who you're going to wind up. So it came down to Ted Danson uh, and, and, a, and another wonderful actor named William Devane. William Devane was exactly what they wrote in the script. Ted was not. Ted was younger. Ted was more looked like he wouldn't have been a has-been. But I just, you know, I my tendency is to think out of the box. So when I've always hired assistants, I hired assistants who think in the box. So when you combine the two, they work out. To get back on track, it came down to the two of them. And Grant Tinker had just become into NBC as the new boss. And, and he knew, and the writers who wrote this and the director, Jimmy Burroughs, all started their careers at grant tinker's company so he had a vested interest in being at the final auditions he wanted uh will william devane and i wanted ted danson and after all going around the room going around i decided to cut through all the muck and you know i finally said look basically it comes down to more women in america are going to want to fuck ted danson than bill devane <laughs> and grant tinker who is a very proper wasp is nothing wrong with proper wasp but he was very he would never curse he would never ever say anything like that and here i am in a casting session casually being vulgar and grant made like a gesture to to clutch his pearls <laughs> but it worked you know it, it it worked and then when we went around the room again um the tide had shifted and everybody agreed on ted 
So, um, you know, you know, that's why I got this quote on the back of my book. Thank you for everything in my life. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about not, that. Not a, not a bad blurb, you know, so uh, anyway. So uh, another of the uh, most famous of the 1980s shows that you were a part of is The Cosby Show, which NBC approves in 1984 with a plan to tape the pilot in short order. <laughs> Less than two weeks after they greenlight the Cosby show, which isn't a ton of time to get a cast together. Uh, Bill Cosby is a big part of this, as are you. I guess now is probably a pretty good time to admit to you, Joel, that uh, Claire Huxtable was my very first television crush. So how did you uh, settle on uh, the the woman who I uh, I knew as Felicia Rashad, <clears throat> but at the time was Felicia Ayers Allen as Cosby's on-screen wife? Well, I, uh, one of my good, I had a very odd relationship with Nell Carter. It was just bizarre. You've read the book, so you understand it. But I was at a party that Nell was giving or had given for the cast of Dream Girls that was then in LA, the musical Dream Girls. And uh, Felicia was understudying the lead. I think the lead, and I forgot who the lead was, doesn't matter, but she was understudying the lead. So Nell comes up to me, grabs me, you got to meet Debbie's sister. I have no idea who she's talking about. And she introduces me to, uh, this is Felicia, this is Debbie Allen's sister. So until she said Debbie Allen, I had no idea. And again, Felicia Ayers Allen. I think they shared the same um, mother, but different father. Whatever it was, they were sisters. And, um, and then leaves me to run off to attend to another guest at her party. And I'm seeing this woman who is like, whoa, you're not like Debbie at all. Debbie is boisterous and this, and you are this regal, elegant, beautiful woman. And uh, and we start talking, you know, just conversation. And then Spanish-speaking server comes over offering wine or whatever it was. And I was showing off. And I instead of just saying thank you in Spanish, I added a little more. And then I said to, I said, oh, God, I hope my Spanish was good. And she said, no, you were very good. And she said, she said, I, I went to school in Mexico uh, and I speak Spanish fluently. I mean, so that's how I learned she could speak Spanish. And we talked and this and that was at end of that. A year later, Cosby is happening. And Cosby was very specific about who he wanted to play his wife because he was casting his real life white, his real life wife who was very light-skinned, very beautiful, and was of Spanish origin, or I don't know what country, but she spoke Spanish, which eliminated like three quarters of the people under consideration. I remembered this beautiful, elegant black woman, Debbie Allen's sister, who spoke Spanish. <laughs> So I told the casting director who was dealing, in order to do this in two weeks, I hired casting directors in New York and Chicago and LA. So you had three people working on it simultaneously. And everybody came from, you know, the cast came from all three places. So the New York one, I said, look, I forgot her name. I don't remember her name, but she understudied in Dreamgirls in LA during this year. And she's Debbie Allen's sister. <laughs> so they... You know, put her on tape and instantly they, you know, flew her to L.A. and she auditioned in my office. First of all, she was perfect, but her audition consisted of it was audition. She read with uh, what's his name? Uh, Michael, the the son. I've got his name. It's going on in my head. 
And uh, instead of Theo, yeah, the actor who played Theo, and she was bawling him out. And instead of going no 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 with finger, she just stared him down. Hmm. She went the complete opposite way that you think people that everybody else went, and it was brilliant. And so she got the part. She yeah. utilized that look so effectively throughout the course of the show, too. And by the way, the ironic twist, I guess, on the uh, on her getting the part is that she never had to speak a she never, she never had to speak a word. Well, what, also because it wasn't the way he had envisioned it that the that she could be Ricky Ricardo with a string of Spanish stuff that Ricky did, but that would be totally inappropriate coming from Felicia. That's not her. Right. She would never do that. You know, somebody else might. Rita Moreno might do that, but not Felicia. So I think you take uh, the appropriate opportunity when talking about the Cosby show to discuss some of what has happened with Bill Cosby, some of what he has been accused of and found guilty of uh, over the last half decade plus now. And I'm, we're not going to talk about that right here. People are just going to have to buy the book to find out more about that. But okay. in doing so, you transition into talking about the stereotype of the casting couch in Hollywood and how you did know some people who exploited the ca casting couch uh, for sexual means, but that was never your thing. And I think that's, that is a, a component of what I feel like is your true character is somebody who is unapologetically who and what he is. You talk about being a gay man in Hollywood in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where people were terrified if they were gay to come out of the closet. And that wasn't ever you. You were who you were. And the same went with how you went about doing this job and trying to do things the right way. You talk about having to fire somebody a couple minutes ago. And while you did have to fire that person, you set them up with something that really helped them out immensely throughout the rest of their career. So yeah. I guess my question for you about that is, Joel, is why are you who and what you are? Why are you this person who uh, doesn't seem all that interested in in playing these these uh, these feeble, uh, these shallow games, and you you would rather just do things in a way that uh, that you feel is, uh, is is morally and truthfully upright. Well, let's start with just the casting house itself. When it comes to sexual things, I'm not interested in the chase. <laughs> Because casting couch is not, it's not, in my opinion, it's not really a sexual thing. It's a power trip. Yeah. It's domination. It's power. I already had power. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't need to prove my power to anybody by doing something like that. And it's not when I say, I, that was a funny line that I threw out, but I don't think I walk around thinking I'm all powerful. But if I was going to have sex with someone, it's because I want to have sex with them, not because I want to force them into doing it. That's not my scene. But I knew plenty of people who were not like that. So it never occurred to me. I'm not interested in the chase. <laughs> if I was going to go into a gay bar looking for a, a mate for the night, my purpose in going into that gay bar was to get out of that gay bar as soon as I could, accompanied by someone else. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I, I think that you know, I don't know if straight people work the same way, but you know, going into you know a, an appropriate bar for that. But that was my. I, I want. I'm interested in the deed. I'm not interested in chase. You know. So so, so that was that. That was that. <laughs> as as a member of the uh, straight community, I guess I'll try and speak for everybody right now. We straights screw up that process so badly. 
Uh, <laughs> like you got, you guys have Grinder, and we tried to do the same thing with Tinder, which within like two months turned into a dating app. It was no longer a hookup <laughs> after like two or three months. So uh, the girls don't try do, it too. No, they're not very good at it. Girls don't do that. Gay guys do that. Gay guys hook up very easily. Mm. Straight women don't do that. And I don't know whether, I don't know why or where, and maybe because it was so difficult to meet people or to, you know, at a, at a time for gay people to get together, that just, maybe this was herd mentality or something, whatever it is, but this is the way it worked. I think men, gay men are very, very good at having sex without emotion. Mm. Women are not. <laughs> Women want emotion with their sex. <laughs> Now, gay sex, you can have gay sex with emotion, but you don't have to. <laughs> so uh, I think it is, you know, I, I, that, that's my film philosophy on that. We don't have to go any further on that. I, I would say you can have straight sex without emotion, too. But then then again, I come from the emotionalist side of being the guy in that equation. Let's put it this way. It's harder. It's a little harder to do it on the heterosexual side. But uh, so, so have you have you always been wired your entire life to just to, to just be unabashedly you? And and again, I say that as, as being a great thing, because there are far too many people in the world who are putting up a charade or playing a game without realizing it. Yes. Hmm. But I didn't know I was consciously doing this um, consciously. I knew um, I knew working in the entertainment industry. I never had to be in the closet. So, and it was the only industry, once I realized there was an industry that I could work in, I always wanted to be a star. I always wanted to be a star and an actor. But then I was doing, in college, I was doing a play and I realized I'm a terrible actor <laughs> and I'm never going to be a star when it comes to acting. But then I, as I learned more and more about the business, I realized that I could be a star backstage I could be a star in back of the camera or backstage, but not in front of the camera. And that's what I worked towards. So my goals were always towards that. And I, and I, and I think I did succeed. And in terms of always knowing who I was, I guess I did. I didn't know exactly how powerful I had become. I knew because of watching Ethel Winant, if we go back to her at CBS, how powerful she was. So part of me knew that when I took that NBC job, the job itself had the power. It wasn't necessarily me. It was the job. As proven, when I left the job at NBC and all of a sudden my phone calls were not returned, maybe as fast as they used to be. And it was a, even though I knew it could happen, I never thought that would happen to me, but it did. So, um, you know, but in terms of being myself, I never thought about it because who else could I be? You know, it, it was um, it, it, it was only it's only recently when people ask you that question or the thing comes up. And I, I, I had no I had no idea. I was me. And me was all me was always great. I, I love being me. I love being the kid in class. I love being the class clown. Uh, especially when I had a playmate all through elementary school. Once I got kicked out of yeshiva, by the way, we haven't even talked about that. Yeshiva is Catholic school for Jews. <laughs> and I got and I got sent there for some misguided grandparents who thought I should do that. But I so I entered public school in the fourth grade, having skipped a grade or two because I had such a good education before I went to public school. 
but I was the, the, I was one of the two shortest and youngest kids in the class. And alphabetically, the other guy's name was Howard Topoff. So T-H and T-O and size places, we were exactly together. And he was the perfect mischief playmate. And we were smart, so we didn't have to pay attention in class. We knew everything already. And, you know, we were sent to the principal's office with great regularity for fooling up, for fooling around, cutting up. And I always did that. I always, I developed that personality. I'm going to use this book. I'll use this book because it's blank. This is NBC, our weekly conferences. Brandon Tartikoff is sitting at the head of the table and Warren Littlefield, second in command, or Jeff Zagansky was sitting at the other end. Then everybody else is along the sides. I always sat at the corner. I sat over here next to Brandon. In my mind, that allowed me to interject whenever I wanted to <laughs> with something funny, with something, with something, you know, uh, meaningless, whatever it is, or to get a laugh. And Brandon allowed me to do that. You know, he just had, we just had this great relationship. I will tell you something, which uh, can you turn off the recorder for a second? Cause I don't want it ever to get out or you promise never to yeah. reveal it. Hold on. Let me, uh, let me, let me pause it real quick. And then the people will just have to wonder. Mm, you people just missed a really good story, but sorry, not safe for air. So it's just for my, uh, Joel's mind and uh, those, those dinner parties that he hosts going forward and probably some from the past too. All right. Uh, one more question, Joel, uh, because near the end of this book, you write, I wish I had do over powers because there are many, many things that I would have done differently. If you could pick one thing to do over, what would it be and why? Well, it wouldn't be one thing. It would be an area. Um, I only became aware. Um, uh, my last boyfriend was a black guy. <laughs> okay. And uh, one day we went to the movies uh, in, in, in L.A. There's this upscale black neighborhood called Baldwin Hills. And the movie we wanted to see was in the Baldwin Hills shopping center. And uh, we, as we're walking through it, I'm the only white person. And I'm looking around and I say to him, I said, is this the way you feel? Is this the way it all it is? He said, all the time. <laughs> lesson that everybody should do i mean it's to walk a mile in someone other's shoes in a way so if there's one thing to do over um two, actually two things one acknowledge the fact that i might not have always been right <laughs> that there is the extremely small possibility that i might be wrong once in a while <laughs> but the other one was to in terms of my career that one was in the first one is really in general life but in terms of my career, I wish I had been able to think more diversely mm. and to cast with a much more open eye. Um, I was not alone in this, by the way. That was basically it, to be able to look at a script and not think, oh, well, this this particular black actor would be very good in this part instead of automatically going to the white guy mm. or the same thing for a brown guy or a yellow guy or whatever they are. Um, but that 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 would be it in terms of uh, in, in in terms of my career. I would have done that. Also, I would never have become a casting director. I would have become I would have become an agent. Huh? Why? Do you know Do you know the differential in salaries between agents and casting directors? Mm. Think of it as a minute. 
sellers always make more money than buyers. Hmm. And I had a cousin who was growing up in the industry and he advice, I said, go to work for an agency. And I got him a job with William Morris because when you're at an agency, you have an over, you have the overview of the entire industry in every facet of it, movies, television, personal appearances, music, gaming. But I never even knew about that at that time. So I think if I had to do it over again, and by the way, a, an inventive agent, a clever agent is also a casting director because agencies put together packages. Mm -hmm. So anyway, but you know, I, I won't get a chance to do it over. <laughs> now, when you left NBC, I forget if it was the late 80s or early 90s, when you left NBC, was that it for you working as a casting director? No, okay. because I did subsequently cast, but I decided I decided that I was going to take I was going to I always talked about being a producer and wanting to produce. And so this was a time to do it. I, I got a I didn't I didn't I got a brass parachute from NBC. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't gold or platinum. It was brass. Uh, I got no on air commitments. I got pilot commitments, but they were pilots, not on air. I think if I was a stronger personality, and I think that had to do with the fact that I always undersold myself. I was always underpaid as a casting director. Uh, I never got what the kind of money that people who were head of development got. One of the reasons was I never gave a thought to money. I, I didn't have a family. You have a family. You have to think of that. I had a dog. <laughs> I already owned a house. I'm a good real estate karma. I owned that house and I owned another house and I had a small apartment building, whatever. I sold the other house for the apartment building. But the point is, financially, I was fine. So I never thought of money. Hmm. Um, I should have. <laughs> and But I did not have great luck as a producer. I realized I'm not a salesman. Hmm. Say I had a project. After the fourth no, I would not pursue it instead of waiting for the 24th no you know so i realized what my skills were and selling wasn't one of them and i did and i did a couple of things you know during that 10-year period and then at the end of it shortly around the turn of the century this century um i i worked in reality television and i, and I liked that i worked at a tv show called pop stars which is like american idol but putting together a group mm -hmm. um so I had fun doing that. And uh, and I managed to eke out a decent living during those 10 years. But then I said, okay, I'll go back to casting. So uh, remember I said earlier about the most difficult thing to cast is an unfunny half hour? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> it was the end of pilot season. And it was a combination of Paramount. And by that time, Paramount owned half of something called UPN, another network. And I was given a uh, I was given a project to cast called The Bad Girl's Guide, based on a book, The Bad Girl's Guide to the Universe. It was a tongue-in-cheek book about uh, I forgot the woman who wrote it, but it was a funny book. And there were four writers; they happened to be all women. And um, again, I can't stress how not funny it was. But I get it. Okay, well, this is my job. But fortunately, the lead character was a young character, a young woman in her early 20s, who was supposed to be beautiful and funny and blah, blah, blah. You know, and, you know, th those people aren't exactly hanging around waiting for you to find them. But because she's so young, there's always a new one or two of them. 
So I took the job and I started casting it and it was fine. I had a really nice assistant. I was enjoying myself. And one day this woman comes into the office and she's absolutely gorgeous. And she reads, she makes sense of the script. And I said, oh, can you do it again? Only do ABC. She reads it again and she takes my note. And I say, okay, here's the full script. Come back on Thursday and we're going to read these two scenes. She comes back on Thursday and she's much better. And I said, wow, not only is she beautiful, but her learning curve is like this. So I say, okay, we're going to read these same two scenes next week and it'll be for the producers. Don't change anything. Don't suddenly try to improve. Just keep doing what you're doing. And even if you've, these are little tips. And even if you've memorized it, hold the script. Looks like, so if they think you've memorized it, they'll think, well, that's the performance they're going to get. So, you know, all these little tips I gave her. She comes in and she starts reading. And there's this long paragraph. And, and, and after she does this long paragraph, one of the women in the back says, thank you, which is, you know, speak, talk for, you're gone, you didn't get it, go outside, <laughs> you know. And I uh, turn around and I said to the girl who was reading, I said, do me a favor, could you wait outside while we talk about you? Because they know they're talking about you, so why not say that? And I said, I'm guessing that you didn't like her. And they said, well, she wasn't funny and she didn't, she didn't make that, she, she didn't read that paragraph funny. I had to bite my teeth to say, bite my lip to say, the paragraph isn't funny. That's why she wasn't funny. <laughs> but I didn't say that. What I did say was, look, we only had two weeks to go. We had no one set. And here, even not being in the business, you have to follow this logic. There's something called a test deal. Again, this woman was astoundingly beautiful. So I tried to remind her of someone who may not have been a great actress, but they're very, but did very well in a comedy. Oh God, her name did when Three's Company. What's her name? Just went out of my head. Uh, Suzanne Summers. Suzanne Summers, hardly the greatest actress in the world. Yeah. <laughs> but I said, remember Three's Company and Suzanne Summers. If these beautiful women are used well, it can work. So I suggest we make a test deal. A test deal obligates the performer, but it doesn't obligate the producer. You sign her to a test deal where they agree to a film test or a tape test or another reading, and you lay out how much money they'll get, how long the contract is. It lays out all the details, but it's all in favor of the producer. The talent has nothing to do with it. They don't get anything. So I said, well, look, honestly, we're two weeks. We don't have anybody. Let's make a test deal with her. It doesn't obligate us to hire her, but at least we can see and you can direct her and you could do this and you can do that. And they said, well, no, no, she's never going to get this. She's not funny. We know she's not funny. She didn't do this. She didn't do that. And I tried again. Well, but what have you got to lose? We have nobody. If nothing else, she's just so beautiful. Nope, we don't want to do this. So I said goodbye to the, the actress, whose name I don't remember, by the way. And then I turned to the, to the women. I said, look, it's obvious you don't need me because you know everything. So don't send me the second payment. Here's my casting book. And uh, good luck. And I walked out. <laughs> and I walked out of the studio. I walked out. As I was walking to my car, 17 messages. What did you do? What did you do? And I said, I quit. <laughs>
<laughs> and the 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 good the good bumper of this story was two weeks later those four women were fired and oh, they right. brought in and they brought in another writer who managed to salvage the property some way and the way these things work out either cbs or paramount had a deal with jenny mccarthy so they raised the character's age rewrote it slightly and jenny mccarthy did six episodes of this which aired and that was the end of it but I walked, I quit. I quit. You don't need me. You you were fucking idiots here. You know, you're hiring me for my expertise and you're not listening to anything, even when it makes sense. <laughs> I'm not saying hire her. <laughs> I'm saying her make a test deal. So that, that was when I quit. That's when I stopped casting. For somebody who had, has the skins on the wall that you do too, by the way, you think that uh, somebody would be smart enough to listen to someone who has proven themselves over and over again throughout different eras of television. And the idea that you were proposing wasn't even some huge gamble. It was a very low risk idea. And it, it, yes, it was, it was no risk. It wasn't even low risk. It was no risk. No, a, no, a no risk idea. But I am glad to hear that you you did get to to leave that profession on your own terms, just like you got yeah. to live your life now too. And I cannot recommend this book enough. He is Joel Thurm. The new book is Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season: Confessions of a Casting Director. Uh, get it now on Amazon. That's where I bought this book. Joel, thank you so much for the time today, and uh, thank you for sharing your story. In this I will today. shameless plug. It's number one on Amazon in its category of movies and movie biographies. I love it. Uh, <laughs> never know. Maybe there'll be a uh, a film or a, a, like a Netflix series adaptation of this book before it's all. There, there, there are several things that could be done with this book, and I hope somebody does something with it. Me too. I uh, hope this is the last time. <laughs> Joel, thank you so much for the time today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for tuning in. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.